Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, now brought to you by Dispatch Media or thedispatch.com. Uh, where you, if you go there, you can sign up for the Goldberg file, for David French's now copious newsletters, um, or for the morning dispatch, which will soon be daily. And eventually you'll be able to find our web only content as well as links to all the new podcasts that are coming. And, uh, you might actually find out what actually happened with, uh, Ted Cruz's dad on the grassy knoll, but that'll come later. Um, in the meantime, this episode is brought to you by Sleep Number and Sleep Number Beds. More about that in a little bit. Uh, our guest today is a friend of mine, uh, someone I, whose writings I actually uh, rely on often. He's one of these guys who, when he writes about foreign policy stuff, if I disagree with him and then I read his stuff, I have to reevaluate my position. Um, uh, don't always come around, but I always have a momentary panic, like, oh, crap, this, he disagrees with me. And, of course, I am talking about Eli Lake. Eli, welcome to The Remnant. Great to be here. Thanks for ha- so much for having me. Um, you are still a Bloomberg guy, correct? Correct. Um, and uh, uh, good luck with the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll just leave it there. I'm one of the ones who are, uh, yeah, I'm still a, a columnist, yes. Um, and uh that is one of the stranger things, but I know you can't talk about any of that because yeah. they'll activate your pain collar. Yeah. Um, so we've had, as I was telling you, um, as we were procuring beverages, uh, we've had a lot of foreign policy specialists on here. Yeah. You know, for deep, deep dives on Iran or Islam or, or Turkey or whatever, uh, North Korea. We haven't had a lot of foreign policy generalist types. And uh, that's sort of – and you're actually a reporter on this stuff too. So – that's that's your metier, as some annoying people might say. What uh, uh, what do you think the state of foreign policy is right now in America? Like uh, our alliances, just uh, someone saying, how do you feel about America vis-a-vis its standing in the world and all the rest? Just sort of for a level setting, where would you put us? Where would you put the situation these days? Uh, I'm not panicked, but I'm alarmed. Um. I do think that there are some trends that are good. So let me start with the good. Uh-huh. Here's a good one. Do the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay. Here's the good trend. Okay. Um, I think that ever since um, Henry Kissinger uh, opened up relations with Xiaoling Lai in um, communist China, there has been a lo- largely a kind of consensus uh, in U.S. foreign policy with a few dissenters that as long as we increase the trade relationship with China, eventually over time they would reform and uh, would be a responsible actor on the world stage and that we would kind of – the relationship would be too big to fail and it would also – you know, that all of this would be uh, – would work itself out. So, uh, you know, anybody who says, oh my god, I didn't realize there's such ter- horrendous human rights abusers in China or something like that, I mean, wake up. We all knew – Right. But the idea would be that over time you would create a Chinese middle class and that, that they would demand the same kinds of freedoms and we would see this this kind of liberalization. And that hasn't happened. And that actually the good news, I think, is that um, let's leave Trump aside for a minute. I do sure. think that there's really a serious bipartisan consensus, as we just saw uh, in the vote. I think there was one vote against the Hong Kong Freedom and Democracy Act. So even if Trump vetoes it and he is not committed – that it will be overridden uh, uh, in... What does the act do, just for listeners who haven't followed up? It's actually really pretty clever. This is another sort of bright spot, which is 
it is an attempt to use the threat of individual sanctions on Chinese military officers and, and, and soldiers that would be committing any kind of human rights abuses in a potential serious crackdown in China. Now, there have been clashes, but there hasn't been uh, a Tiananmen style or an invasion of the forces that are sort of gathering on the border of Hong Kong yet. And it is an attempt to sort of signal that if you do that, then you can't send your kids to the college in the United States mm-hmm. and you will be a pariah in the West and will freeze your assets. Uh, and they, they're they using an approach known as the Global Magnitsky Act, which was originally against sort of all of the Russian officials responsible for the torture and murder of this Russian lawyer who had uncovered this incredible tax fraud scheme. Um, and then, you know, has, has been more recently applied to, uh, you know, sort of the members of the uh, Saudi, you know, intelligence apparatus that were responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. This is an effort to try to kind of signal using this threat before something bad happens, uh, that even if uh, Xi Jinping decides that he has to go in, that hopefully there will be a significant number of, uh, you know, military officers who do have if, – if there's a garrison of Chinese officers uh, – there is a garrison of Chinese military inside Hong Kong. They have the internet. It's not filtered really. So they're – Aware, And the idea is really to signal to them and others that, you know, if you do this, you know, we're watching. And uh, I've talked to some of the activists and some of the people who are part of the democracy protest in Hong Kong. Uh, I was I was just in Halifax International Security Forum over the weekend, and there was a contingent of those folks there. And I'm, you know, they're very happy about this bill. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. And if, I th- if it becomes law. And it will become law. Okay. If if Trump vetoes it, there will be – I mean everybody is saying – even Republican leaders, I should say. And it was their bill. This is Jim Risch's bill, uh-huh. the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee chairman. Uh, and he's a major Trump ally. Uh, but on this thing, I think this will be an area like uh, we saw with uh, Turkey and Syria right. where Republicans will criticize the president. Um, but more importantly, forgetting the immediate dynamic, I think there really is becoming a kind of bipartisan consensus on these China issues. There's a lot of support in uh, the Democratic Party for the measures that the Trump administration took with regards to Huawei. And I hope they're not reversed in a, tra- in a trade deal. But mm. so that I think is seeing that change is important. Um, so that's a good thing. Uh, waking up on China. Let's just call it that. A bad thing, or I should say, is that you know, foreign policy has – we never had a kind of post-9-11 consensus really um, and it's become worse. So, you know, if, if we were having this discussion 10 years ago or five years ago even and we were going to – it would be a huge deal if the State Department came out and said, I don't think that the uh, is, Israeli settlements in the West Bank are illegal under international law. That was the – an enormously big deal, be a change in policy. It's much less of a big deal right now because if a Democratic administration comes in, it's almost guaranteed that they would reverse that. Right. So we're really going to see a kind of, uh, I think for the time being at least, we should expect that as the party changes uh, power and the uh, changes as a, as a, we get a different party in power in the White House, you will see things that used to be sort of harder to change will be much easier to change. I don't think that you would see, for example, um, a democratic well it depends on the democratic president it would be hard to you know sort of say well we're no longer going to have an embassy in west jerusalem right that would be very difficult i think politically and otherwise but there's a whole lot of other things that i think are going to be really much more up for grabs it's going to be much harder we'll get right back in the paris accord yeah right? 
Uh, well, right. Uh, and that's, that's, that's that, to me, I, that's less of a big deal. I mean, I, I agree it's not a big deal, but it's, it's also the kind of thing you would expect right. with this pendulum swinging back. Exactly. Right. And that makes it harder to navigate a relationship over time with our allies. And right now, the most important thing we have to do is convince all of the smaller states that used to be in the Soviet Union and all of the um, independent countries in East Asia that we're a better bet than China and Russia. Right. That's the when people talk about great power competition, that's what it is. And it's harder to make that case if people feel that our foreign policy at a deep level has become so partisan. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate to sound like the boring establishment. Oh, we need consensus. And I'm not arguing. I mean, it's good to have debates. But there should be at least some basic points that, well, everybody agrees on. And that is strong. That's important. Um, so I'm, I'm very concerned about that. Uh, and I'll add one more thing. I am concerned that um, I think I think you have to – I'm concerned in two ways about sort of Russian meddling, which I've been thinking a lot about recently. One is um, I, I do think that there – that we will see more – hacking and leaking, which is very bad. And I'm sort of, I think sometimes, but I'm also worried that there's like a segment of the Democratic Party or what they call the resistance that has really lost their minds when it comes to Russia and is accusing people like, you know, Senator McCarthy of being disloyal Americans. And that's also terrible. And um, that's going both ways. It's going both ways. And I should say that, you know, when we hear the Chris, you know, when Chris Ray, the director of the FBI, say we're really concerned about people who believe conspiracy theories, there's a lot of conspiracy going theories going around. It's not just a problem with President Trump believing that the Ukraine server is buried in Kiev. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the, uh, the the Hillary Clinton servers are, are buried in Ukraine. It's like a lot of you know so-called serious Democrats who still believe you know elements of the Steele dossier, which right. Fiona Hill just told us was a uh, disinformation. And uh, kind of putting that genie back in the bottle is really going to be hard. And that, I think, is the ultimate goal of what the Russians wanted. They wanted to um, just attack the legitimacy of our elections and our political institutions and congratulations. And I do think that it's not to, I mean, it's not to blame everybody's equally responsible. It's horrendous to have the president sort of, you know, think this. It's, it doesn't even make any sense if you think about the Ukraine server theory really doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, on This morning on NPR, I called it bat guano crazy. I mean, it is. It's just, just straight. To me, it's more disturbing than the Biden stuff. Yeah. Because particularly since he ha- brought it up again last Friday on Fox and Friends, he, no one has gone in and said to him, this is crazy. This is not true. Well, we know that his first Homeland Security advisor, Tom Bossard, said that to him. Right. And we know that every I mean, I've heard from other and I don't know why. I don't think, by the way, the, that he, because he believes this, it's evidence that he's, you know, a Russian asset. Or no, I don't either. I, don't, I, don't I just think he's does, he, he is prone to believe conspiracy theories. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's fine when you're a reality star. It's really horrible if you're the president. Now, the and I was just going to say, it, that theory, it doesn't even – I don't understand it. Like the Ukrainians were hiding her server. What is it? Like if they interfered – like – you know, he is aware because his campaign did that Democratic National Committee emails were hacked and leaked and his campaign trumpeted them. So if the Ukrainians were trying to help the Democrats, I mean, is he saying, you know, that's the part that I don't understand. Yeah. Why also, would they release these damaging emails? If you read Wired, um, yeah. their explanation on the technical side about why this is crazy is really helpful. Oh, I agree. I've, yeah. And I have read it. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly and, what you're right. First of all, it's not one server. There are like 120 mm-hmm. servers. Right. And, um, and they took an image of 
right. The, the CrowdStrike was able to basically give the FBI everything it needed. Right. It doesn't need to give them the physical server. Right. And on Friday, Trump said on Fox and Friends that the owner of CrowdStrike is a, it's a rich Ukrainian. That's just not true. I mean, there's all those sorts of... Victor Pinchuk did make some investments into CrowdStrike, but it's that's a, it's irrelevant. Okay. So it's it, but anyway, this was a good. This is we stumbled into this, um, sort of like almost any paragraph Joe Biden offers out loud, um, uh, into a good sort of roadmap for where we should go here. Good, the bad, the ugly, right? So I want to push back a little bit. I think we basically agree on the the China stuff. Yeah, but as someone who believes and wrote a whole book about how you know. Economic prosperity and economic freedom leads to political freedom, and that is what the history of development is over the last 300 years. Um, whenever I hear people say it hasn't happened, when you said in the beginning, the theory was, was that they were going to get rich and then they were going to get free because the middle class was going to demand rights and all the rest, and that hasn't happened. I always want to add, yet. Sure. Right? Okay. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. No, my point is, is not that it's inevitable and it's not guaranteed, but... And part of the process, I think, of getting to where we want to go, where we want to happen with China, is that now that they're rich enough, the old argument where we say we had to, we got to let them get rich so that they can develop democracy, well, we've checked the box that they're rich enough. Now they have no excuse, right? So it, it should invite more pressure from the West. We should do things like the Hong Kong bill. We can't sort of say, well, look, you got to understand these people have, you know, 500 million people in extreme poverty and they got to do something about that. And that requires they think that requires authoritarianism and there's nothing we can do to stop that. So you got to give them a little bit of a pass and it's better that they get free. They get rich, you know, um, in order to get politically free. That argument, we've reached a certain that's end of phase one. Right. Yeah. Um, But I would argue I think that what they're doing with the Uyghurs. You know, I, I never want to hear people say never again because we sure. it's the same people who let North Korea do what it's done and let China do what it's done. But what they're doing to the Uyghurs is, is a outright evil. Um, it's at minimum cultural genocide. Every now and then it borders on actual genocide. The, the facial recognition, social media, authoritarianism stuff is really bad. But all I would say is that part of the reason why the Chinese government is doing that is that th- – as a friend of mine once put it, the Chinese Communist Party is almost as afraid of the people as the people are of the Communist Party. I think that's true. And they understand this argument as an empirical matter that the richer population gets, the more it demands rights, and they're terrified of that. And so this is the way for them to tighten the screws in anticipation for those kinds of demands. Um, but anyway... Well, I'm not giving up on free trade. Right. But... I do think that we were a little bit blind to some of the corrupting influence of China, particularly in how they were able to co-opt our business community. And we all, yeah. we all saw this with the NBA, which was a, a couple months ago, and it was horrendous. You know, it was terrible. Yeah. Uh, LeBron James, in particular, like you know, telling Daryl Morey that he needed to be educated. But that's a real that happens all the time yeah. in terms of the business relationship. So, And then when you realize that American tech companies may have played a role, there was this Yale uh, professor, who I'm going to forget his name, who was involved in like, you know, some of this sort of DNA testing that they used in Xinjiang against uh, the Uyghur population there. Um, there I, so I agree with you in the sort of, yeah, hasn't happened yet. And I don't, I'm not giving up on the idea that these things are cor- correlated. What I'm saying is that we're in some sort of period now where we have to understand that when 
we enrich China, we are enriching a really ruthless and brutal kind of totalitarian machine. No, that's that's totally fair. And we have to be aware of that. So, you know, kind of like didn't pay attention to it. But now I think we have to start thinking of it. I hate, I agree with you. I don't want to hear never again again. And I don't like um, Hitler ad absurdum. I don't mm-hmm. like Nazi analogies. But I do think that there is a sort of a parallel. It's like, you know, there were Americans who wanted to trade with Nazi Germany mm-hmm. Before, uh, you know, the final solution was uh, implemented. And right now, I'm not saying that there is going to be uh, – I my my prediction if i is uh, which is horrible i think that it's, it, the the plan for 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 um xinjiang is is not um you know extermination of the Uyghur people it was to the enslavement of the uh, Uyghur yeah. people but that's pretty that's bad that's enough bad enough no, that's right that's really terrible and so uh anybody who is involved in anything that helps the chinese in that i think that we should use market pressures and that means that we have to have a very different approach and then just like any kind of investment is okay yeah yeah no i th- i think that's right and it's one of the funny things about you know and i wrote a book getting pretty involved in some of this stuff about nazi analogies is that if you say to people so and so isn't hitler whether it's trump or john yeah. you know g or whoever they think you're defending them wait a second you know it's like i i was pretty sure that like Hitler was supposed to define the outer boundary of bad, bad people, not like the minimum threshold of bad people. Do you ever listen to hardcore history? Every now and then, yeah. I I love hardcore and and Dan Carlin has this whole thing where he because he gives you such a, a sweep. He says, "Well, you know, if you go back to some of the Mongol rulers, Hitler would be a moderate." And it's like <laughs> the point is like it depends on what part of history. I thought. Um, uh, I always I always like that. Um, you know, it's I, but anyway, I do think that we're sort of waking up, at least in the political class, on that, and I think that that's a good thing. And you know, instead of just complaining that they're stealing our intellectual property all the time, it seems like we're sort of getting smarter, and that's uh, a good thing. I want to give Trump a bit of credit in a way that at first I I didn't quite see it. So my 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 concern about Trump's China policy for a long time was, okay, this Huawei thing is good, and and you know some of these visa bans on Chinese officials. Having to do the week, all good, but that'll be thrown aside as soon as he gets his trade deal. What I now think, I think, and still sort of, but I think that the, the trade negotiations with China have opened up a kind of leverage with China. He made reference to it in that rambling Fox and Friends interview, you know, in typical Trumpian bluster. He said, well, you know, the reason that Hong Kong hasn't been crushed is because of me, because I told Xi that if he does, it'll have a negative you know, impact on our trade negotiations. But there is some truth to that. I'm sure. G wants a trade deal. Yeah. Making the tariffs and all that has created leverage. And let's be honest, there it's not credible to think that we would have been willing to start a war over Hong Kong. I don't even know if we're willing to start a war over Taiwan. Yeah. And I say that as somebody who really wants to defend Taiwan. Yeah. I'm pretty hawkish on that. Um, and yet, this is a way of creating leverage so far, that leverage appears to have worked. It may it may fall apart. He may he may order the troops in anyway, and he doesn't care. But for now, at least, um, I think you have to sort of credit Trump uh, in that way. And I don't think that everything that Trump does is terrible. And I don't think Trump is you know every oh he he must be some advisor who's come up with that. I think that Trump that is a tip that that's very Trumpian art of the deal. Like he tries to create leverage. It's why he loves negotiations. I think he's wrong a lot of the time. But in this particular case, he might be right. So what do you think of this argument, which you hear mm-hmm. from some foreign policy um, experts, 
that for all our problems with China, at least China very much values global stability, very much values the international trade regime, even if it's cheating, right? It it wants that system in place, Right. right? And meanwhile, Russia does not like global stability. Russia does not like the international regime or the you know the 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 global institutions that you know police trade and and all of the rest and is and therefore there's more room to work with China. I mean like China doesn't want the Straits of Hormuz to turn into um, a no man's land of of bloodshed, right? I mean they want to maintain the global energy supply, they want to maintain the rule of law. Scott Lincecum are free trade friend here um, points out that when we actually go through the mo- go through the effort of taking China to the WTO we win more often than we lose and China abides by our rulings and that stuff um, um, and so therefore well I agree with you in the long term China's something to be worried about and I particularly worry about the, what happens when the communist ideology completely rips away and it goes back to sort of Confucian Chinese nationalism stuff, right. which I think is very possible. Sure. Um, um, and when the logic of the one-child policy really reaches the horrible conclusions it does in terms of the demographic transitions that it causes, that stuff worries me more than communist ideology. But um, what do you say about the idea that like China is actually – it's an adversary we can work with unlike Russia? I, I think it's a wrong framing of it. I uh-huh. think the reason why China doesn't want chaos in the Straits of Hormuz is because they are not an oil producer and Russia is. Mm-hmm. So if there's chaos in the Straits of Hormuz, then the price of oil goes up and Russia is enriched. And meanwhile, China has a real problem, you know, getting oil. Right. Uh, and the, and it doesn't help them if the price of oil goes up. Um, so, But, but I'm, I'm yeah. talking about from realpolitik, you know, where you sit is where you stand kind of stuff. China is a major trading nation. Therefore, it wants the sea lanes open, right? They're, yeah. China is, uh, you know, benefiting from its cheap capacity for cheap labor and, and manufacturing commodities at a cheap level. And that encourages it just to sort of abide by the international order in a way that Russia, which is basically a petro-mafia state, right. benefits from chaos. I'm not saying it's an ideologically driven thing. I'm saying it's a self-interest driven thing. Well, I would, I guess, so I, I would say that I think that Russia and China have an interest in a global system that doesn't care about um, any of the kind of liberal rights of citizens, sure. uh, that doesn't really protect weaker states from a kind of uh, vassal status in what Russia calls its near abroad and what China kind of regards as its sort of sphere of influence. Right. Um, so they have an overlapping interest in that regard. They have an overlapping interest also, I might add, in um, a digital infrastructure in the world that gives enormous power to sort of states to do everything from turning off the Internet to monitoring Internet traffic uh, to giving people a social credit score. That's something that both China and Russia have an interest in that I would think America really doesn't. Um, I hope America doesn't. Um, And we see this in certain regards, like you know, there has been an. I, I've I, I wrote about this. I've written about this from time to time. But there, um, you know, there there have been efforts to try to have, for example, a cyber, uh, almost for lack of a better word, a cyber arms control agreement with China, Russia, and the United States, because those are the three biggest cyber powers in a lot of ways. And it's broken down uh, historically because 
the Russians and the Chinese believe that that actually should require states to shut down servers of like you know, separatist or dissident groups that they don't like. And the United States has never agreed to that position. They just mm-hmm. want it to mean like, all right, well, listen, we have an understanding. Like when you when you probe our electric grid, then, you know, this is going to be a certain kind of response and you can't do that. And, you know, it's problematic too because you can't – it's not like you can count cyber weapons the way you can count nuclear missiles. But the point is that there has been some negotiations, you know, for like 10, 15 years on this. Mm-hmm. And the reason it breaks down is because the authoritarian states want – this to mean that we have that governments are, are, you know, kind of the U.S. would have an obligation to shut down, you know, uh, I don't know, like reformist websites that were right. hosted in Canada or something. Right, right, right. And that is something that like so in that respect, I think that they do have an overlap. They, they have an interest in a world that's safe for bully authoritarian states and, uh, you know, is erodes any kind of sense of a, of a liberal democratic order. Now, a fair point would be. Did we ever really have it? You know, fine. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I tend to think that there's some wisdom in Kissinger's observation that there really is no international order. Mm-hmm. It's just chaos and all these things kind of mask all of it. But, uh, you know, we America has, has benefited from this kind of rules-based system, but that rules-based system is grounded in the idea of kind of some universal rights and things like that. Um, and so in that respect, I, I, I do think that China and Russia can cooperate, and they have in some ways. I mean, they have cooperated in that respect, although in certain areas, you're right. So I, And also, I look at China's behavior. How is building artificial islands in the South China Sea and basically militarizing it, how is that you know, part of the global status quo? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can, you can find a lot of examples of this. I mean, China is wealthier and more powerful than Russia, so it's able to do much more with traditional kinds of foreign policy by building infrastructure and doing these kind of debt traps and things like that. Um, but that doesn't mean that I think that they're interested necessarily in the same kind of world order that we are. Yeah. No, that's yeah. fair. I mean, yeah. my point was you hear this from people and my response is yeah. similar. I mean, you brought up some new things for me to think about, but is, again – for now, right? I mean, I, I always I, I get really frustrated when people do this sort of static analysis of anything, like this sort of snapshot. This is the way the world works now. Well, China is the theory is that China's got another fifteen or twenty years that it wants to like build more artificial islands and build up its military, yeah. modernize its stuff, and then when it's done taking advantage of the international order, right? <laughs> it will, you know. Uh, reveal its its true place sort of like that Simpsons where the parade floats turn into Russian, you know, missile launchers right. and all that kind of stuff. They're biding their time and it doesn't mean they're they're they plan global domination and man in the high castle type stuff with Chinese characteristics. It just means that right now, like a lot of developing countries, they're taking advantage of a global system that is to their net economic benefit, but that doesn't mean their long term aspirations are good. And I think that's yeah the part that gets missed in a lot of that. Um all right, so uh, let's move closer to home. Um, can you give me um, – so you are – I mean, how do, how do I put this? Um, you are not a total believer in the deep state stuff. No. Neither are you a total uh, – totally dism- – you're sort of where I am, right? You, I don't want to mischaracterize your position, yeah. but – there are bad actors who work for their own agendas within various agencies and institutions. Calling them a deep state makes it seem like they're more like Hydra than they really are. Yeah. But um, so why don't you give me your 
global perspective okay. on the deep state stuff. So deep state is actually I I know of the deep state as a concept because of I Turkey. Lived, I lived in Egypt, <laughs> and Turkey is a deep state. Pakistan's right. a deep. State. Doesn't the phrase originally come from Turkey? I think it does come from originally yeah. from Turkey. And basically, I always look at it like this is the the test. Is the permanent national security institutions, the military, more powerful than the political elected government or non-elected government, however you want to sort of say it? So does the president have to answer to a general? Does the president have to answer to you know some sort of cabal of shadowy figures who are right. not accountable to the people in some ways? Um, that's the bottom line, which mm-hmm. is to say that you know there were enough military coups in Turkey that we could say in the 1970s and 1980s that uh, there was a state that was more powerful than the ones that you know sort of duked it out in the newspapers and on television. Yeah. Can I can I can I defend yeah. the Turkish deep state for two sure. seconds? Because um, a point my dad always made: the don't like coups, don't like military coups, stipulated yeah. right. But for most part, in the 70s and 80s, when the Turkish military intervened. In politics, they did so basically on the side of secularism, secularism, the rule of law, and to a certain extent, democracy. It was like, we're not going to let the people vote away democracy, as imperfect as their democracy was. And that often gets missed in the way we talk. We, we think of the, the military. People on the left would talk about the military in Turkey in the 1980s the way they would talk about you know, the Greek kernels in the 1960s sure. or 70s right. or whatever. And it wasn't that. Anyway, go on. Yeah, it's it's always more common. I mean, I love the Mosada example. Like, everyone's like, oh, my God, they, they what, look what they did to Mosada. And I'm like, yeah, well, Mosada, like, shut down the parliament. I mean, right. Mosada himself was involved in an, uh, an undemocratic kind of power grab as well. Um, not not defending for anyone the uh, the coup of like what 53 right it's just, it's just all more complicated it's than always more complicated yeah, yeah um and by the way for those who are interested the people who were on the side of the CIA and the MI6 at the time were the was the clerisy in Combe, which is now in charge who constantly brings up the most of their cards so they were historically on the wrong side of history at the time but <laughs> that's uh, a subject for another podcast digress yeah. um back to the deep state the, so i view it like this i am not for, so there isn't a unified um, kind of it's, – it's not all coordinated like that. Different agencies exactly have different agendas. You know, I think it's fair to say that there were like some people in 2016 who were in the New York field office of the FBI who wanted Trump to win. Right. And then it's also fair to say that there were people at the headquarters of the FBI, which we know from the revealed text, that wanted Hillary to win. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little bit more complicated than like everybody was out to get Trump. But – Certain kinds of norms were certainly violated, especially after Trump won. Most notably, and I, I have, I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself. I think that like leaks are great as a journalist for many years, and I've had them. Um, I think that we have too many state secrets, um, and I think that in some ways, you know, in the hands of most journalists who are responsible, leaks are a, an important way of kind of checking power, and it is it. So it's and, but. Certain things should never really be leaked, and one of them is the existence of counterintelligence investigations, which have yet to be proven, and particularly the FISA warrant of somebody. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the FISA – I mean, listen, whatever you want to say about Carter Page, we spent – and to this day, I mean, this is the incredible thing, not just on Twitter, but like, you know, when you have major cable hosts who are earning millions of dollars, like Rachel Maddow, who are, you know, kind of putting out these stories on an American citizen who – which turns out – largely to be false entirely. I mean, he that he was bribed by Rosneft to be the go-between between Paul Manafort and the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence is 
at this point, we have to say a canard. Mm-hmm. Um, I am waiting to see what the Horowitz report says. Uh, that's the Inspector General for the Justice Department, and then later Durham, uh, about that FISA warrant. Um, I know that there were some stories over the weekend which said, said everything. I, I don't know what to believe at this point. Right. It seemed to me like if, on the one hand, some of these... And, you know, some of these stories that I was reading were saying everything was fine. Oh, but also there was an FBI lawyer who had, I'm like, that doesn't sound fine to me. Right, right. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I don't, I'd like to sort of see it for myself. Um, But there's, so, but what I've always said is that there's one thing, which is that we kind of want our counterintelligence people to be paranoid and follow leads, but they should be really in a box and that in and that we, the rest of the public should not know right. that these investigations are happening until you are ready to indict someone. Right. And then you make it public and then, you know, we can have a debate about it. But having, you know, we think, we know, we suspect, we don't know, and then having that be really over and over and over fueled. And I mean, it was it was a constant comp topic of conversation. Uh, that to me was was pretty dirty pool and um, is a problem. And uh, we also saw in the campaign, we had we, all these former CIA, it's unheard of. Never before had we seen former CIA directors and senior people would make public statements, write op-eds saying that they yeah. suspected that Trump was a Russian asset. Right. That's insanity. That's yeah. that. If you want to know, there was a very good uh, Brett Stevens column about the Ukrainization of American politics. Did you see that? It was his column, I think, uh-huh. over the weekend. Uh, worth reading, yeah. and it was, it was it was very anti-Trump, and I, I agree with most of the points. But this is also making us a banana republic. That's yeah. something that banana republics do, which is that you have, you know, very, that 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 you see the partisan the partisanation of these institutions. So that's a problem. Yeah, that, just for yeah. uh, Michael, my fad is not a word. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, there's that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but Michael, Michael, Brennan, my friend Michael Brennan Doherty, yeah. who I disagree with a lot on on foreign yeah. policy stuff, but. He was making the point for a while that we're importing Ukrainian politics here. Oh, that okay. once once you have one party pick one side, yeah. one side and one, you know, and you could argue that there's something like that has been going on with U.S. Israel relations for a while as the two parties change on their views of this, right? That the Republican Party is like the pro Likud party and the Democratic sure. Party is whatever, whatever ends up being the left yeah. over there. Um, but it hasn't defined our politics or been as insane as what we've seen with well, the Russia also, Ukraine right. stuff lately. It also doesn't affect this kind of extraordinary power that I think is necessary for responsible government agencies to have, which is to uh, you know surveil the communications of people we suspect to be foreign spies right. or terrorists or you know child pornographers. Most people would agree that that's okay as long as there's some sort of oversight and check and balance. But you cannot have those institutions then in any way be sort of weaponized in a political sense. And I think in some, I think we have to acknowledge that in some ways, at least the disclosure of that stuff, it was. Yeah. And we should wait for these reports to come out and try to keep as much of an open mind. I would also argue this. It doesn't help anybody when you have the kind of expert class on this uh, defend everything uh, almost in a Trumpian way, like as if nothing is wrong. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I hate this term. Gaslighting is overused all the time. But it is a kind of gaslighting. And by the way, it's you're not helping the cause. Mm-hmm. It, defending Comey and McCabe at this point does not mean that you're really defending, I want the FBI, you know, I'm tired of the attacks on the FBI. What you're, you're just, you're making it more likely, in my view, that 
these institutions will lose a kind of credibility with uh, the democratic legitimacy that it needs to function mm-hmm. in our society. So there has to be some level of self-criticism and acknowledgement, starting with the fact that the Mueller report found Trump did a lot of bad things. And we can criticize it, but it did not find the central conspiracy that a lot of people assured us he would. Right. So start with that. Right. That's okay. I'm willing to, you know, if it turns out, I mean, first of all, I didn't really go out on a ledge on it, but I'm willing to accept that. That's the point. The fact that Adam Schiff and all these people did not accept that, I think it's hurting this big issue, which is the legitimacy of these institutions. So I'm not Glenn Greenwald. I think we need a national security state. I think we need counterintelligence officers. I think it needs to be strong. I think it needs to be nonpartisan. Um, If you want that, then you need to acknowledge where there were some serious problems and flaws. doesn't mean that you burn it down. doesn't even mean that you have, you know, church committee hearings where, you know, you air every dirty laundry and everything like that. But it does mean that you have to have some kind of humility about it. And I haven't seen that from, like, the lawfare crowd or any... With a few exceptions. I mean, I would say Jack Goldsmith's been great on this. Yeah. But it's few and far between. And uh, I would like to, I, I, you know, so so I come at it as a kind of institutionalist, but I'm, I, I also acknowledge that there have been some serious problems. And I have, I don't trust Brennan at all. At all. No one should trust Bre- Brennan. But, uh, and, and he. And I don't trust Schiff. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the thing is I think Schiff actually ran those hearings pretty well and I think got facts out there that are pretty dispositive by my lights. But he lied about the Russia probe and evidence against Trump for a year. And he read into he read he 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 read some of a lot of the Steele report into the congressional record, pretended that there was information that he couldn't share with us that would confirmed it. Um, all of this has kind of been memory hold. I thought it was extraordinary that he was chosen to be the face of the impeachment, although I agree with you that he did get a lot of facts on the record. Um and I and listen, I mean, like Nunes is a punching bag, and there's plenty of things to criticize with Nunes, particularly suing journalists and all kinds of stuff. So I want to just stress that. That said, he found things out, and they turned out, I think, to be correct. There, I think it's fair to look at unmasking. I think it's fair to look at the origins of the FISA. I think that um, I'm really interested to look at to compare the Democrat and the Republican memo about the Carter Page FISA after we see the Horowitz report and the Durham report, because I suspect that the Democratic memo is going to be uh, hard to defend, Mm -hmm. uh, saying that they were justified and had every good reason to sort of do this to the guy. But I could be wrong. But again, I'm willing to sort of say, all right, these people are looking at it. Let me. I didn't see that with with some of the, with, with the Mueller report from the Democrats, and I think that's a it is a problem. And by the way, that's one of the big reasons that I, the more I think about Ukraine, that you're not seeing any Republicans going along with it. Yeah. All right. So I want to yeah. I, I want to get to that, but um, yeah. you know, some of this stuff I have to say keeps me up at night, and that's why I really want a sleep number bed. We all know sleep is important. I particularly think sleep is important. I work under the principle. People ask me like, how long? You know, what? like when I, as a writer, like what are my habits, I learned long ago that I would be more effective getting a good night's sleep and waking up early and writing for an hour than trying to force stuff for another three hours at night. Um, and uh, as I get older, productive productivity hinges almost entirely on good sleep and occasionally brown liquor. So... Um, that's why we're so happy to talk about the benefits of the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed. Sleep Number Beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support, which is really important for people like me who um, are rumored to snore 
Um, and the way that gets fixed is uh, by my wife sometimes removing pillows. Sometimes I catch her and I think that she's about to, to suffocate me. But anyway, the Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably throughout the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. So experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. During the ultimate Sleep Number event, save an incredible 50% on the Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed. For a limited time, only at Sleep Number at a Sleep Number store or at sleepnumber.com. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 600 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find one near you at sleepnumber.com slash dingo. That's sleepnumber.com slash dingo. You owe yourself a good night's sleep, and Sleep Number is there for you. All right, and we're back. So, um, um, on the Ukraine thing, okay, uh, I, I want to avoid my own ranting about this because people have heard it from me enough, but the attempt to create an alternative time, an alternative reality where it was really Ukraine that meddled and, and, and tampered with our democracy in 2016, uh, the soft version of that, I am perfectly willing to acknowledge. I mean, the Andy McCarthy makes a good case that there were individual bad actors or individual actors who, really wanted Hillary to win. I think some of the evidence that people marshal for this is terrible. Like um, the Ukrainian ambassador writing a letter, uh, writing an op-ed after Trump talks about how Crimea probably should just go right. to Russia. What else would you expect a Ukrainian ambassador to yeah. write? You know, right. that's not meddling. That's not meddling in an election. That's just like, you know, running an op-ed, standing up for your nation's interests after it's been gutted by a hostile power. But, so it was funny when Fiona Hill had her testimony last week, a bunch of my, our friends, including, you know, a bunch of uh, Republican congressmen were very upset at her insinuation that they were peddling Russian propaganda about Ukraine being the one who hacked our election and all that kind of stuff. And on the one hand, I do not blame them for being upset because most of them didn't do that. People like Andy McCarthy haven't done that. Um, on the other hand, when the president of the United States yeah. goes back like a dog to its vomit on this particular claim, as he did on Friday on, on Fox and Friends, and the GOP lets him do it, and then John, Senator John Kennedy basically says, I don't know, who can tell? Maybe it was Ukraine, maybe it was Russia. That's also gaslighting, and yep. it's also... It's 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 a reprehensible um, dereliction of duty to just the truth and and American national security. Um, and you know, so you saw this quote from Putin last week, where he says, "Finally, they're looking at Ukraine for meddling in the election. Right. We didn't do it." What is your overall view? I mean, do you think that this is? Do you? Th I mean, I, we both don't think that Trump is a Russian asset, but he, he's kind of like the asset version of an unindicted co-conspirator. I mean, he does do an enormous number of things that are in Russia's interests. Um, yes and no. Okay, well... Okay. In terms of messaging, yes. In yeah. terms of, like, providing aid to the Ukrainians, which apparently he actually didn't really believe in very much anyway. No, I think that's fair. But um, where do you come down on assigning, you know, 
values to the the Russian meddling versus quote unquote Ukrainian meddling and and how much do you think Putin is enjoying all of this? Okay, a Putin is just loving it. Yeah, that we can that we know because he's he's been trolling. I mean, like what was it? He was asked I got, like three weeks ago, like, are you going to intervene in 2020? And his response was, don't tell anybody. I mean, like, he's just loving every minute of it. Yeah. So a couple points. Uh, let's just start with Ukraine versus Russia. It's not it's not comparable. The Russians military intelligence service had two units that posed as the hacker Guccifer 2 stole all kinds of not just embarrassing emails between Debbie Wasserman Schultz, but like, you know, actual, you know, internal political messaging plans and internal polls and things like that, and then put them on the Internet. And in some cases, even, you know, contacted like this Florida GOP operative uh, through as Guccifer 2.0. And also, by the way, Roger Stone as Guccifer 2.0, which I should say, I don't think Roger Stone thought he was dealing with Russians, maybe. I mean, I think he just thought he was dealing with, you know, a bunch of tricksters or people like that. And he was willing to use the stolen documents. But that's not the same thing as sort of, you know, collaborating with a foreign power or something like that. Um, And that was a state-directed operation. And it's totally different than writing an op-ed or even having a, a kind of former journalist who is in parliament make public this black ledger which by the way was all about the internal ukrainian politics right. with the former president yanukovych it just so happened the yanukovych's uh main advisor was this guy paul manafort and he was on it but it wasn't like they put it out there to to screw manafort right i mean it was no, about they put it out there yanukovych. to screw yanukovych right. and it was like right. that was about internal ukrainian stuff right so it's not comparable in any way now as for this alexandra chalupa and her yeah, research. Explain the Chalupa thing. I, don't I, I keep thinking it's another product from Taco it. Bell. It's yeah, right. It's I. She was interested in, uh, you know, meeting with Ukrainians about Manafort because he was working with the campaign, and I guess she knew before he became was named the campaign manager or something that he had, she had some connections with Trump, and uh, you know she worked with the DNC, and like that's just old fashioned regular research. I think it's a better argument, which they never make, is the Russians actually spread their... This is also what Fiona Hill, I might... Fiona Hill said things that were not good for Democrats. I wrote a whole column Mm -hmm. on this. She said they spread their bets. They did a lot of things. They didn't just have the hack and leak campaign, which obviously... By the way, I don't need an intelligence community to tell me that that benefited Trump because a bunch of Democratic internal documents were released to the public. That, of course, is going to benefit the Republicans. Right. but, you know, we, we also know that they had all these fake accounts that were, you know, sort of working in times with Bernie and, you know, trying to radicalize people for and against Hillary. There was all kinds of stuff. Um, and I think, and Fiona Hill said this, that she suspected that the Steele dossier was in large part, or partly at least, Russian disinformation. So if it was Russian disinformation, think about this. The people who are now warning us about Russian disinformation kind of fell for Russian disinformation. And the, the, an extraordinary th- point that is made by um, the, the Trump defenders on this, and this is in Lee Smith's new book, uh, but, you know, James Clapper leaked to CNN that they were briefing the president on the dossier uh, to claim that he didn't know that that was going to be red-hot stuff mm-hmm. and then probably lead to the disclosure of the dossier. 
Um, that's just terrible in yeah. some ways, right? Um, and even though a lot of people sort of knew about the dossier because there were people who were briefed on this as like during like in September, like, hey, can you look into it? And journalists did and they couldn't confirm any of it really. But the point is, is that when once that sort of gets out there, then like, you know, great, the Russians did it again. So I, I, I kind of think that the Russians really their 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 goal was to destroy legitimacy in the democratic institutions, say that this election wasn't legitimate and, you know, try to get us you know, more divided and and cause a kind of like civil political war. Congratulations, mission accomplished. Um, That's the only caveat. But back to Trump and this pernicious canard that that was the Ukrainians who did it. It's just absolutely crazy. Um, It's terrible. It should be denounced. And I think Republicans really are it, to, you, to, you cannot ride with him on that. I don't understand why. I mean, maybe Senator Kennedy, I don't know. He knows his, his state better than I do, I guess. But um, I cannot imagine that there are a lot of Republican voters, especially, and I should say, if you go back in 2016, Devin Nunes was a real Russia hawk. He was warning the administration right. on Russian cheating on, like, you know, arms control agreements. Uh, do you have a theory about what has happened to Devin Nunes? I think that it's an example of that he understood that this was just he hit electoral pay dirt. And so we're in this weird moment where if you are kind of villainized by CNN and CNN is a little bit over the top, in my view, well, Me too, sure. everything, including this. But if you're villainized by CNN, then you are uh, lionized by the people who hate CNN which is the Trump base. And he has been able to become a kind of hero in Magaland because I think, you know, Nunes in many ways was fairly kind of middle of the road. Boehner. He was a Boehner guy. Boehner guy, exactly. I mean, that's when I first met him. He was a Boehner guy. Right. You know. And, um, you know, and was rightfully skeptical of all the Obama intel people. And I thought, you know, raised some important issues. I mean, like he was the guy who kind of found out about a lot of the um, – the pressure to downplay, you know, Benghazi, ben, not just Benghazi, but uh, the Islamic State intelligence right. of the, you know, you know, things like that. Uh, and he had worked with Schiff, I might yeah. add. The two of them like had worked together on a lot of stuff. And then I think that they both really did go that in the in the moment, like Schiff became over the top resistance here, and Nunes became over the top MAGA. And that is a symptom of the problem that we have right now, which is that we have seen. Uh, you know, the, the we have seen this sort of partisan breakdown of these institutions, which are supposed to be nonpartisan. But just so yeah, I'm clear about where you're coming out. You don't are you saying because you said you know he hit ele- I think your phrase was electoral pay dirt. Are you saying that it is purely cynical calculation, or have they actually drunk the Kool Aid? Well, I think with with Nunes, I do think that he felt that there. It was awfully quick, knowing how he knows assessments are put together in the intelligence community, that they were able to come up with that Russia interfered on behalf of Trump and yada, yada, yada. And he'd already had gone through all of the flimflammery of the Obama administration's intelligence community, or some of the intelligence product, not all of it, with regard to the Iran deal. So he'd already been like prepared to be skeptical. And I think that there, that there were fair points to make about how quickly they reached the conclusion and whether they considered other stuff. I mean, all that stuff, which, you know, again, my view is I don't need the intelligence community to tell me that the Russians interfered on behalf of Trump. I know that because I, I read the emails. You know? Right, right. <laughs> um, but 
his point as kind of the chairman. So I do think that that was that was legitimate. And I think when he discovered some of the stuff with the unmasking, which was real, by the way, and that turned out to be true, and some of these other things, and he saw the, the same stuff that we all saw in that period after Trump wins. Like, wait a second, how did the New York Times find out about a counterintelligence investigation? That almost never happens, right? Mm-hmm. That when he saw that, and then I think that that sort of moved in the other direction, and then it, it didn't hurt that uh, he was able to fundraise like you wouldn't believe off of this stuff. And he was able to get a kind of you know he was the he he was the hero in all of this respect and and by the way he's he's not only going to have not only is his seat really safe i mean he has become like one of the kind of main people in the maga universe at this point uh oh for sure um and uh i mean i don't know i mean i, I you know if we were having a conversation about who What's the better route? You know, five years ago, we'd say, well, Will Hurd, man, that guy's got a really bright future. But I mean, if you think about it in our politics today, at least for now, Devin Nunes is kind of that's the way to survive and thrive. Um, I think at least Stefanik Stefanik demonstrates that more than anybody. Absolutely. At least we all know at least like from we know at least. And and so so in my view, like that. So I think it's the combination of both. It's not purely cynical. I think that there were things that were really legitimate. And I think that the fact that like. As soon as he started looking at that stuff, it was an unbelievable sort of mainstream media assault. But then I think that once that kind of happened, it then became a kind of almost corrosive. It had an almost corrosive effect. Um, so, you know, it, it, I mean, I guess ideally, because I, I, I've known him for a while, I would have been nice to sort of just have him say, you know what? Like just any Republican to say this is not okay, but it's not impeachable. That would be the sort of sane position. Mm-hmm. But you know, you can't say that in Trump's in Trump land. So yeah, I mean, I I used to be very friendly with 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 Devin Nunes, I, and I I liked him. I I find him sometimes somewhat unrecognizable these days. But it does seem like, and there's this is true of a lot of people. One of the one of my pieces of advice to young opinion writers has always been: at, sometimes you have to disappoint your biggest fans if if you always listen to your biggest fans over time you become a caricature of yourself and um i I have a a long theory about how pappy cannon became the pappy cannon of the last five years is because he used to at least be very careful about not sounding anti-semitic but every now and then he would say a little something that the anti-semites are like yeah, Pat, go, Pat, go. And he would get dinged by William Sapphire unfairly for sounding anti-Semitic when he didn't mean to or something like that. And no one would stick up for him except for the people who wanted him to. Right. And eventually it's sort of like, you know, a caricature. What did he say? The Amen Corner and all that. Caricatures, um, the definition of a caricature is is that it's got the recognizable features of the person, but they're exaggerated, right? And so Ann Coulter becomes more Ann Coulter-ish because she listens to her biggest fans. Although I got to say her willingness to break with Trump is kind of impressive. I agree. You know, as I wrote in G-File recently, say what you, say what you will, but the, the tenets of Coulterism, at least it's an ethos. Much as um, I do, uh, but anyway, uh, that's a tangent. We don't have these to men go. are ma- are nihilists, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, um, I last only because it's so rare. I have a another uh, weather control person, yeah. in the studio. <laughs> um, uh, what's going to happen with BB? Do you think these charges are legitimate? Um, what do you think about this thing about the settlements? Sort of uh, 
Israel potpourri for, for 500, Alex? I think some of the stuff, I mean, this is very Israeli. Like, I like to go back to that story about, you know, Rabin's first premiership ended because of a scandal because his wife still had a bank account in Washington from when he was the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. So these kinds of things can sometimes take on a life of their own. I look at a lot of it and I say to myself, I'm sort of where John Podaritz is. I don't know if you read his piece on this. Like, okay, he talked to the publisher of some newspapers and said, could you cover, could you give me some good coverage? And that is seen as a big scandal. I think there are other elements of this which are worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also just think Bibi has been in power for so long that this is this is what happens. Right. Uh, I'm less freaking out about it because I think Benny Gantz uh, is pretty centrist and wouldn't change his foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his sort of approach to national security, there might be an effort to try, although I doubt it, to reset relations with uh, some of the more liberal parties in Europe and America. Maybe. We'll see. Um, and as for the settlements, I agree. I don't think that that's a violation of international law. It doesn't mean that I think that Israel should occupy forever. I mean, I, I, but I just think that, you know, I'm glad that that happened from the State Department. I think it's less meaningful because I think it'll be reversed by the next Democratic administration. Right. And uh, that at a certain point, but I, but on the other hand, it would be, it, 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 it's prob- it sends a good signal that, you know, it's not like we have to sort of wait for the Palestinians. The Palestinians have to sort of get it's it's their leadership. They need they need new leadership. So the current crop is gonna is old, mm-hmm. and the hope is is that you don't have more radicals coming in. But that's the that's the space to really watch, I think. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think anyone's really doing anything on that. So it's funny. I mean, we're, we, at the beginning, we were talking about China, and I made my point about it can't necessarily always make these straight line projections, right? That's one of my great right. gripes. At almost any point in our lives, if you were going to make a straight line projection about Israel's future, none of them would have led to the moment that we're in, right? I mean, right. you have Saudi Arabia kind of sort of making nice on Israel. Everyone's sort of more concerned about Iran than about, about Israel. Uh, the Palestinians are... They've always been a hot mess, but they seemed like they were – the future was on their side for most of my life. And how close do you think – you know, given where we are right now, how close do you think we are for the Middle East to – let's put it this way. In 10 years it, with – I'll go all McLaughlin on you – with zero being – Israel, absolute pariah state, six-day war level hated by the entire Middle East, and 10, another Middle Eastern country. Where do you think we'll be in 10 years? Well, on that question, much depends on what happens in Iran. Uh Because I'm an optimist on Iran in the medium term, that I don't think that the current regime has the legitimacy to kind of hold on to power. And at some point, I do hope that we get another democratic revolution. Are we actively helping with that there? Yeah. Well, I mean, not in, uh, not, not, not in a, not in a Alan Dulles way, Mm -hmm. but, um, (laughs) more in a kind of, uh, you know, old original Liz Cheney at the state department kind of, I mean, listen, I, my, I read, wrote about this. The, the U.S. De, U.S. has some some is is working, and and I think others are working kind of outside the U.S. government at helping what's called digital resilience of Iranians, so that they can get online when the government shuts down the internet. That's a very exciting kind of technology. 
sometimes you can use satellites, sometimes you can use proxies from, you know, lo- neighboring states. Mm. You know, there's, I, I wrote a column about this, but so there's a, um, so, so there's that. And I think that there, there, there are other kinds of programs that we fund, which are, you know, it's hard to say how valuable they are. But the other thing is that, you know, we're really seeing more coordination from various groups and it's a more national movement now. It doesn't mean I think this round of demonstrations is going to topple the government. I would, I don't make those kinds of predictions anyway. But so that, back to Israel. Mm. Israel's normalization in the region is almost entirely driven by the existential threat that Iran poses to these Gulf states. Uh, So it's in their interest. And, you know, the hope is that you can use that uh, common cause now to maybe build something that would endure, but that will require some agreement with the Palestinians. If you don't have that, then it'll probably slide back into uh, what we saw before in terms of the region. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, though, that it's is as Israel kind of becomes a more partisan issue, that for all of the people who will always hate Israel on college campuses and among the left, you have a whole generation of sort of right-wing parties like the Hindu nationalists of India love Israel. Right. The Christians of Kenya love Israel. So there's a whole bunch of people who become super Israel fans as well. Um, so, I mean, yes, I think it'll be a pariah for elements, mm-hmm. but it'll be like, you know, the best friend in the world for other constituencies. Right. And I think that you're seeing a lot of that, obviously, in the United States, because evangelicals really love Israel, and they've become um, probably the most more important constituency in terms of domestic politics than American Jews at this point. Yeah. Which I thought I would never say, but it's true. Yeah. Again, straight line projections. Yeah. Never work out. <laughs> All right. So uh, we got to wrap up here, but um, Irving Crystal got that one right. That's right. Irving Crystal was you got a lot of things right. Yeah, Irving Crystal did get a lot of things right. Um. So you mentioned this off air. What is one conspiracy theory? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. This is like my was my, my favorite game. Is like what is, I can tell you my one conspiracy. Okay, so so the listeners know because uh, what is your one conspiracy theory that you don't have to fully endorse, but you there might are, be something there. But you're you're <laughs> le- you're least inclined to fully reject, right? Yeah. First of all, I should just before I give my answer, and I want to hear yours. The, the realistically. You you can never just pick one. I mean, right. if you believe, if you really believe in conspiracy theories, you believe in lots of them. Right. So, but I love that game because I just always like to sort of say, and then it always ends with like, okay, and you go around the room and you know, say these innocuous things. And you're like, you know, I don't understand why the Jews keep lying about the Holocaust. I mean, anyway. <laughs> but um, mine for real, and I just say this is I sort of have, I don't believe, I, I have outstanding questions about uh, who killed Tupac Shakur. Or if he even was killed, because he did put out a lot of music uh-huh. after his 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 murder. So you think it's it's it's? I'm not saying I'm Maxine Waters. Like I don't want like a a national 9/11 style commission on who murdered Tupac, but I just don't think that I it, it never added up to me. I remember at the time. Okay, so I've, I will admit I have not followed this too closely. Um, but are you saying you're not sure he was murdered at all, and that he may have just changed his identities out there somewhere? No, I don't think I really believe that. Although uh-huh. I, 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 I did. It, I have at times gone on like internet rabbit holes of people who think they've seen him in the world. Uh huh. Uh huh. But it, he, there were like, there's a lot of recorded material from Tupac. Dave Chappelle had a famous sort of joke about this on his show, uh-huh. where you just you would like you were in a club and you heard a Tupac song and he made a reference to something like after he was killed. And you're like how that happened? Yeah. It, there was a lot of that, 
and then it just you know the it i i just think that there's like more that we just don't know about like how who who had him murdered that's my only thing so i'm not i don't even it's not even a really good conspiracy theory i guess for me at this point but that that's like that's fine i have uh there there's i still have questions about the the murder of tupac yeah this is almost cruel for us to do in front of jack who has many thoughts on conspiracy theories which we'll get to um but um you know, I didn't. I, when I asked the question, I didn't have an immediate one in mind, and now I'm kind of freaking out thinking about all the weird. The Illuminati Freemasons did the Tea Party. Uh, <laughs> no, that, that's a, that actually probably sort of maybe happened. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, one that kind of comes to mind is going to get me in trouble with some people is uh, um, in 19. I want to say 1980, Reagan came out with a statement saying that there were people inside the New Deal that. Um, admired Italian fascism and um, um, and tried to emulate it here at home. And Ted Kennedy went nuts. Front page of Washington Post went nuts. Uh, since I wrote a book, basically defending right. Reagan on that point, I can give go with that one. I mean, it's complicated because um, they also like the Soviet Union. Um, That's not a conspiracy theory. No, I know. I'm trying to think. Um, oh, 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 oh. That's weak. I know. I'm trying to think. Do better. Come on. All right, well, give me an example of one of the... I mean, I'm trying to think. No, I'm not helping you. <laughs> Figure this out. He did it. Um, yeah, but he was the one who brought it up earlier. I'm trying to think. Um, I know. I think Kennedy probably did steal the 1960 election. The problem is that Nixon tried to steal it, too, so it's kind of a wash. Well, is that a conspiracy theory? We We know that... That his father went around West Virginia with all the yeah. cash. Okay, and then, yeah, yeah, okay. So, look, I'm trying here. I mean, I'm, I'm flailing around. I'm trying to think. I mean, I think 9-11 actually happened the way the public record shows. Um, um, I always had a problem with the magic bullet theory from the Kennedy assassination. Oh, okay. But, yeah. um, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think. This is this is going to be one of these Esprit d'Escalier things where yeah. like, all day long, like, oh, I should have embarrassed myself by admitting this. <laughs> Uh, Who really killed Hoffa, and where is he buried? Uh, Jack Goldsmith's new book, by the way, is fascinating. That's what I heard. I haven't, I haven't yeah, read it yet, but I've it's supposed to be amazing. It. So far, it's really good. Um, Goldsmith's great. Uh, you know, we want to have him on this uh, podcast. Yeah. Um, oh, here's one very obscure, uh, but since there's a movie coming out about the Lewinsky thing, yeah. which has the lady from um, The Americans uh, playing my mom, which should be oh, interesting. That'll be interesting. Um I don't believe that Monica Lewinsky wrote the talking points oh. that were a big deal back at the time. I think those were written either dictated by by Clinton or uh, or what was his um chief his main law, Bruce Lindsay. What was his his lawyer? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Bruce yeah. Lindsay. Is it? Is that Bruce Lindsay? I think. I think yeah. yeah, I think it was dictated to her because it was not the kind of legal language that a um 26 year old Liberty gibbet um, comes up with on their own, and that was a big issue at the time because that would have showed uh, collusion to defy, to to uh, obstruct justice and all of these various things. Do you think, um, do you think Vince Foster really? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The Vince Foster rabbit hole. The Vince Foster thing was weird. You know, I mean, that um, was weird. Yeah. You know what else was weird? Gary Condit was weird. Gary Condit was very weird. I agree. Um, Gosh, what were the other great conspiracy theories? Why haven't we heard from Jesse Jackson Jr.? Now, there's a whole bunch of like these. You could go through these. Like weird. There's Washington is not a. They're always really weird stories. Yeah, I'm not arguing for conspiracy theories. I'm. Not, by the way, I want to just make it very clear. 
I I do think Vince Foster killed himself. Yeah, I do too. I, Gary Condit has been cleared. Right. As far as I know, Jesse Jackson Jr. really did have a mental breakdown. Yeah. I, I just want to make all that. So, fun fact, um, <laughs> I, I, I want to respect the sanctity that is yeah. my cigar shop, but the major confrontation between Jesse Jackson Sr. and Jesse Jackson Jr., where they hashed out what his life plan was going to be amidst all the troubles. Yeah. Was at my cigar shop in wow. Washington, D.C. Yeah, oh, I wasn't there that day. And like everybody else, he's, everyone, everyone told me everyone was really, really quiet trying to hear <laughs> what they were saying. But I wasn't there. Um, all right. So this is great. we will revisit uh, conspiracy theories uh, shortly. Uh, but Eli, thanks so much for doing this. Oh, love I, to have I, you. It was a real joy. Thank you. And uh, I assume we can have you back at some point. Oh, would love it. Um, all right. So uh, we'll be back with the various and sundry in a minute. Okay, so Eli has left the building, and uh, um, Jack, you were correct in chastising me for my um, inability to conjure a good conspiracy theory that I have some support for um, off the cuff. Um, What is your most – what conspiracy theory are you less wholly convinced is wrong? Well, I am open to any 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 conspiracy theory that posits – that depends on the assumption that the Soviet Union was bad. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm open to Soviet direct Soviet involvement in either the assassination of John F. Kennedy or the attempted assassination of John Paul II. Okay. Well, I mean, the, the John Paul II one, you're on pretty safe footing on that yeah, one. Yeah, I think that's all but confirmed. Yeah. I think that's... I'm pretty sure that's going to be verified soon if it isn't already. So it's funny you you bring up the Soviet Union because, you know, Soviet Union is nothing but a bunch of laughs. Uh, no, but um, uh, because, uh, you know, the Russian meddling stuff, which we talked about a bit on this, um, I've written a few times about this, is that that tactic of mucking around with American society and uh, fomenting civic discord and all the rest was a KGB tactic going back a really long time. And, you know, was it Stokely Carmichael that they were trying to egg on into, you know, sort of replacing Martin Luther King and they fed all sorts of horrible uh, um, misinformation about the civil rights movement in part because they wanted to stir up even more of a backlash against it. Um, And the funny thing is, if you ever talked back in those days about there being any sort of connection between the Soviet Union and sort of black power radicals, the left would come on down on you like a ton of bricks for being a conspiracy theorist and a sort of McCarthyite who sees a red under every bed. And that's why I thought the TV show The Americans, do you ever see The Americans? I haven't seen it, but I know I'm, yeah. I'm told to watch it. The Americans is great. And, uh, you know, it's about these two undercover Soviet agents working in the United States. And one of the backstories for the first couple seasons is how um, the the wife um, had this long-standing relationship with like this Black Panther guy who was also an agent of the Soviet Union, and a huge chunk of sort of the Black Power stuff was actually at the behest of of the communists and all the rest. And um, what's funny is is that because anti-communism and communism are so much 
you know, deteriorated in the public consciousness these days. Um, you find now all of these liberal writers willing to talk about how the Soviets were really trying to destroy the country by fomenting racial hatred in this country in both in both directions. And it's just sort of now a sort of, hey, did you know what they did, you know, in the 1960s kind of thing? And uh, um, and it, it's because now it's not a red scare, but the sort of anti-Russia stuff among Democrats, which they laughed at as recently as 2012 when Mitt Romney talked about it, is now sort of this defining paranoia, not entirely unbased, by, you know, un unfounded, but this idea that, you know, sort of Russians are manipulating everything. What's the name of the crazy lady? Um, the one who was saying how the, the sergeant of arms of the Supreme Court was going to arrest Donald Trump. Um, uh, who cares? Let's forget about her. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, but... but there's a lot of that kind of weird stuff at the periphery. Uh, Louise Mensch, right? Um, at the... We we didn't. Who cares? <laughs> well, I know, just, you know, I'm, I'm making... Let her point. fade into irrelevance. Uh, she will anyway, even if with this, this shout out on the remnant. <laughs> um, but that kind of Menchism is, uh, it may not show up on like Morning Joe every day, but like that Malcolm Nance guy, uh, there's a really fascinating interview with him in The New Yorker where he really does see sort of, you know, he thinks that Trump has basically been a Russian asset for all these years and all this kind of stuff, which I think is sort of crazy. But that's a conspiracy theory. I just my point is I think it's really interesting how you now get liberals who are perfectly happy to talk about how evil the Soviet Union was because it helps them in their case about how Russia is bad now. But they never would have allowed these kinds of conversations or these acknowledgments of historical fact twenty years ago. Anyway, uh I want to thank Jack uh, for the. It's not, the problem is we can't call it an English accent thing, right? Because Scottish is not an English accent. The Anglosphere accent. That's right. The Anglospheric accent competition. Um, Jack, can you run through who who was the winner? Yes, Daniel Hannon won with thirty-two percent of the vote. He won the popular vote. Uh, Neil Ferguson as himself, twenty-two percent. Charlie Cook, 31%, Oof. so just missed tying with Daniel. And then Sean Connery, a.k.a. Neil, uh, doing Sean Connery's voice, got 15% of the vote. So this is kind of confusing uh, because Daniel won the popular vote, as I mentioned. Charlie almost won it. Uh, but if you if 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 Neil Ferguson's voices formed a coalition, they would have a majority or a plurality coalition. coalition. Uh, but then if if Daniel and Charlie formed a coalition, they would clearly outvote the the Neil Voice coalition. And then that doesn't that ignores the fact of like whether which which side Sean Connery would actually take. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe Neil while doing Sean Connery actually has different views from Neil not doing Sean Connery. Because Sean Connery, I believe, was in favor of the Scottish independence referendum. And uh, I don't know. It's just it's fascinating. I don't know if yeah, we've I actually mean, learned what the... Part of the problem with trying to adjudicate the winner is whether you're going to do the American style, first past the post, right? Uh, winner take all um, standard, sort of the electoral college standard of, of, of elections. Or you're going to do the sort of parliamentary style thing where coalitions can win. Um but I think we got to give it to Dan, to Dan on this one, um, uh, because we are Americans after all. Um, but he's not. That's true. But <laughs> we're we're making all these Brits dance for our amusement, so Just like we have since seventeen seventy six. Yeah, and um, 
Um, and we should be fair. Charlie is, in fact, an American now. That's true. Sorry. Um, I know he listens. And actually, I don't... And he's a Floridian. He's the most American possible, I think. Florida is uh, the end of history, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, which is a sad commentary. Um, okay, so thanks to Eli Lake for coming in. Oh, I should mention, um, I told Dan that he won, and he, he said, uh, Good heavens, Holmes, we did it! <laughs> Happy to go head-to-head with Neil on regional accents of the British Isles. Sent from my iPhone. I don't think he said that. Yeah. And the funny thing is is that uh, Dan, I don't think, grew up in England. No, he did not. I think he was born in Peru. Yeah, that's right. So, But I, I detected not a whiff of a Peruvian inflection in his English accent, but who am I to judge these things? Um, anyway, want to uh, thank everybody who participated. Uh, it was a fun thing to do. Um, we're going to have another podcast later this week on Thanksgiving. We're going to have Yuval Levin come in and talk about gratitude. And um, other than that, I hope everybody has a great uh, Thanksgiving. I'll say that again at the end of the next episode as well, I'm sure. Um, thank you, Jack. Thank you, all the, the Anglo people. And uh, I'll see you next time. Shaken, not stirred. similar shirts oh yeah you're right. this is a problem yeah it's a podcast <laughs> Whew, that's right okay um